Good morning and welcome. My name is Erin Smith and I'm the Manager of Research and Strategic Planning at Ontario Creates and it's my pleasure to welcome you to this morning's panel session. For those of you who don't know us, Ontario Creates is an economic development agency of the Government of Ontario. Our mandate is to build Ontario's creative economy which includes the book, film, interactive digital media, magazine, music and television industries. Together these industries contribute over six billion dollars annually to Ontario's GDP and account for close to 65,000 jobs. There's no question that the pandemic has transformed every aspect of our lives. As Ontario is learning how to live and work during these challenging times, we wanted to bring together creative industry experts from across the sectors to talk about the relationship between Ontario companies and global tech platforms like Amazon and Spotify, as they've become more important than ever as a source of new content during the pandemic. How have content creators worked with them to ensure their content is enjoyed by audiences all over the world? We are so grateful to have Ramona Pringle moderating today's panel. I imagine many of you are familiar with Ramona's work. She is a creator, a journalist, and a researcher whose work focuses on the interaction between humans, technology, and the world around us. She currently wears several hats, including as associate professor at the RTA School of Media and the director of the Creative Innovation Studio, both at Ryerson University. And you can hear her in her weekly tech column for CBC and see her on Yahoo's Editor's Edition. As an expert in the intersection of media, technology, and creativity, she's the perfect person to walk us through this discussion. Ramona will introduce the panel, but I'd like to welcome and thank Angela Misery, author and digital director at The Walrus, Jay Devinish, director of A&R at E1 Music Canada, John Bain, head of distribution at Level Film, and Sasha Borsma, co-founder and producer at Sticky Brain Studios. Before we begin, just a few housekeeping items. Our panel will be about 45 minutes long and we'll leave 15 minutes at the end for questions. If you have a question, please use the Q&A feature on your screen to ask it. If you are experiencing any tech challenges, let us know by using the chat. Someone from our team is monitoring it and we'll try to help you out. Um, after the Q&A, we'd like to give you the opportunity for some virtual networking. If you want to stick around for a few extra minutes, we'll open up the webinar so that you can speak with fellow attendees. Our Twitter hashtag, if you'd like to tweet about today's event, is hashtag OnCreates. And now over to our moderator, Ramona Pringle. Hi, thank you, Erin. Good morning, everybody who's joining us. Um, yeah, you know, I, I feel like these are topics that I think about day in and day out um, from multiple perspectives. And it's really hard. It's hard to think of any about anyone who's in the creative industries in any way who's not thinking about uh, kind of where we're at these days. And so in terms of the broad themes, in terms of the topic that we're going to be looking at, we're looking at how the pandemic has shaped and shifted the panelists experiences and, and really their industries experiences with digital platforms, um, how they've adapted to the challenges, how they've discovered opportunities, learned strategies to thrive. Uh, you know, there's there's multiple sides to this. The first thing, and I want to start the conversation even before the pandemic, because I think, you know, the market dominance of major multinational media companies and tech companies uh, was already really uh, upending the way creators reach their audiences and or, or, and changing and creating new opportunities as well, but before the pandemic started, but the pandemic really accelerated all of that. And on one hand, you know, I was just reading, there's a research project called I Lost My Gig that shows that Canadian artists and freelancers have lost more than $20 million in income since the pandemic started. On the other hand, you know, um, you know, mobile, the statistics in terms of mobile gaming have not surprisingly shot through the roof. We all know this uh, anecdotally as, as consumers or audience members as well, we're all home and <laughs> I 
don't know that there's a show that I have not watched now. So it's a very interesting moment in time in terms of challenges and opportunities. And I think it's we're just so fortunate to be able to have uh, the expertise from across the creative industries joining this conversation this morning. So thank you very much. What I'm gonna do now is uh, introduce everyone that's on the panel so that everyone who's listening gets a sense of the incredible brain power that's in the Zoom meeting right now, and then we'll dive into it. So for starters, we've got John Bain, who's the head of distribution for Level Film. Uh, he joined Level in 2018 when Level Film and Search Engine Films merged. Level Films this year include The Peanut Butter Falcon and The Last Black Man in San Francisco. He has held a wide range of jobs in distribution, including a long stint in Lionsgate, uh, at Lionsgate Films and Maple Pictures. Sasha Borzma is the co-founder and producer of Sticky Brain Studios. Since 23, I'm still like, I'm, I'm three, <laughs> three sips into my coffee, but I got the name right. I just missed the year. <laughs> Since 2013, Sticky Brain Studios has developed over 50 games and apps for clients ranging from broadcasters to health tech to not-for-profits. Sticky Brain Studios in the, uh, is in the bug testing phase of two mobile games, Loki's Castle, a casual game for fans of puzzle solving games, and Kimono, a dress up game inspired by the Japanese tradition of kimonos. Sticky Brain Studios has two sister companies, Possible Future Studio, which is using VR technology to explore the stories of African slavery in Canada, and Going Dutch Productions, which is adapting Bloom Digital's queer friendly dating sim game, Long Story, into a web series. Those all sound really exciting and really interesting, and we're going to get into all of that because you're looking at releasing games in this current market, so I'm sure you have a lot to share. Uh, Angela Misery is the digital director of The Walrus. Uh, she's an award-winning journalist and novelist who has worked online her entire career, first at the CBC for 14 years and now at The Walrus as digital director. She teaches brand journalism at, the, at U of T and fundamentals of journalism at Ryerson University. Uh, and then Jay Devinish is the director of A&R for E1 Music Canada. With over 17 years of experience at E1 Music Canada, Jay currently holds the title of director of A&R Marketing. Jay is responsible for recruiting and marketing artists for E1 Music uh, and is based in their Toronto office. Over the years, Jay has worked on projects from artists such as D DJ Khaled, Jim Jones, The Diplomats, Wu-Tang and Snoop Dogg, to name a few, the list goes on. Recent signings include Reese, Char Charlotte Day Wilson, Georgia Ann Muldrew, David Strickland, and Prime Boys. So as you can see, the um, we've got quite the lineup. We've got a, a stacked deck here. Uh, where I want to start the conversation, again, I was mentioning, I think to, to start our conversation around COVID challenges and opportunities in the changing market, I think to start in the spring is actually too recent. I think we need to start a little bit further back. Uh, and really just look at for these various uh, industries, be it publishing or uh, film, music, uh, gaming, how things were already changing before that because of the market dominance of either big tech and major platforms. Aaron was mentioning Spotify and Amazon, uh, but also, you know, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Um, Disney is, you know, we were just talking about the fact that half of the kids at school this morning are dressed as Elsa from Frozen. Uh, how do you, you know, how do you compete with that? So this is the trend that's been going on for easy a decade now. Um, and in terms of how that changes your business, and I would say especially how you reach audiences, um, that's where I wanted to start the conversation. I think, Jay, music is such a natural place to start this conversation because streaming has revolutionized music. And, you know, as you say, has destroyed physical and physical retail and download business. So 
what, how has the landscape changed for you in the recent history before we dive into sort of COVID days? Yeah, I think, I think for us um, with streaming, you know, came some great, but obviously with, with retail shutting down, uh, we in, in the early years were traditionally a distributor. Um, and I think the big challenge, the big change that we saw getting into this kind of new age and dealing with these multinationals is it was really about own content and owning IP. So we went from kind of a distribution model a lot of times uh, where we were doing a lot of distribution deals for people to focusing on own content. Uh, so E1 acquired labels like Last Gang, Dual Tone, and they obviously have their own label, E1 Music. And that's kind of been the direction now where, where we're not uh, focusing as much on distribution because obviously we don't have that physical channel um, and we are a digital distributor, but it's it's really focused on owned IP. And that's what we're we're really focused on is is acquiring amazing content that we can now kind of distribute through this global platform. So that's, I would say, the, our biggest uh, change um, pre-COVID and everything, yeah. John, the other industry that really comes to mind in terms of massive changes is film and television. Um, you know, platforms like Netflix have, I, I had students, um, earlier this week doing an assignment where I had them poking around with the Wayback Machine. If people don't know it, it's, it uses the Internet Archive uh, and you know, it's the largest database of ar the archives of the web. And some of them, and I, and I asked them to, to look for them, look into their search history at what their most recent website they had been on and try to find the equivalent of, of, of something in 2008 or earlier. And they went to Netflix and they could not believe that there used to be DVDs that you would get in the mail through Netflix. But even that was, um, you know, quite a, a disruption from what film distribution or, or the way that we would access movies, television before then. So things have changed so substantially in film, the relationship between not only, um, uh, producers and the entities that are licensing their content, but also audiences and how you reach audiences. Yeah, even, um, I mean, the COVID has exacerbated a lot of the, um, the trends that were already occurring in, in, in movies and television. Um, for a long time, um, obvious to everybody, um, streaming is, starting to be more and more dominant. Um, it has to do with, um, and again, it's, it's analogous to music, although music's always a bit of a head of the curve um, compared to film because it's smaller, you know, file sizes, it's easier to stream. So film's always gonna be a little slower and it's, um, but it's the same kind of forces at work and people wanna see what they wanna see, when they wanna see it, where they wanna see it. Um, the status quo always benefited people like us in distribution and other producers to keep all the kind of windows separate and all the media separate. Um, but consumers don't want that. And so there's this um, constant dance between what consumers want and then what the industry wants because it benefits the industry. And um, sometimes the in industry is slow at responding. Um, there's lots of kind of structural and you know, self-interest reasons for that. So for us as a distributor, we're effectively in the middle. Um, and the middle's kind of shrinking because you're going direct from content creators to content consumers. And what do you need the middle for, especially if it's streaming? So that's something that we've uh, looked at. You know, it's basically an existential threat to anybody who's a distributor of, of any kind. And so similar to what Jay was saying, um, again, music's a little ahead of the curve for film. You want to get closer to content creation because 
uh, if you have people still want to see stuff, people still want to play games, they still want to listen to music, but do you, how do you get it to them is the question. And so that's kind of changing. And then there's, we won't go, I'm not sure on this panel we can talk about it, but there's, unfortunately there's effects, uh, consumer's choice like that. And the um, people going more to watch stuff on, on streamers, it affects actually film financing. So it, it's actually gonna affect the kinds of films that are being made and not necessarily in a good way. Um, um, and again, that's maybe the subject for another panel. Maybe we can get into it a bit. I think it's really interesting um, and probably very relevant to the people who are watching this because it is people who wanna get their films funded and wanna get their films made. So the more, uh, maybe that's something where if that's something that people wanna hear a little bit more of if they're in the session and they wanna just poke that in the Q and A, I think we should be giving, <laughs> let's give everyone what they wanna get out of this session. Uh, so sort of looking at the big picture and this shift, this ongoing shift, which seems to be moving exponentially towards major tech platforms. And I think the argument can be made in multiple ways. I mean, in some ways, the path or the, the uh, yeah, the path to, to reaching audiences seems to be shorter. And yet the power is, the power balance can be very uh, unfairly um, balanced towards the, the major tech platforms. And so in terms of, how it's changed your business and how it's helped and how it's hurt. I mean, Angela, I look at you and as someone who has spent her career in digital, uh, you must be at this stage, the most popular person in the room. So what does, uh, what does all of this look like in terms of the shifts you've seen in, in your industry? It is a joke I was telling in April that I was suddenly the most popular girl at the Walrus. And having worked um, always as the digital person within larger media companies that were focused on different things. So when I worked at CBC, you know, you had CBC television and then you had CBC radio and then you had like me and four people running the internets, uh, you know, in the, in the late 90s. So um, yeah, it's been kind of awesome to be the most popular girl at the Walrus. And at the same time, holy bunnies, we have to bring everyone up to the same standards. I had to get like everyone thinking more digitally and they were really excited to do it. It's just that we accelerated their learning at, at, um, at a level that, uh, that we probably should have planned for a bit better. Um, I've been at the Walrus for three years and they're an incredibly resilient and um, adaptable bunch uh, for 28 people in a basement that churn out, you know, magazines and websites and podcasts and, and gorgeous events. Um, so We've been doing a lot of that and it's been amazing because it, what I've been telling people is that it, it's not only an opportunity to bring everyone up to like a level where they all feel comfortable digitally, but also to think differently, like to actually open their minds to something different. Because yes, some doors close. We can no longer do Walrus Talks live. We can no longer bring people into a giant room and enjoy ourselves with wine and, and, and nibblies. Um, but we can now um, expand it to not just like Toronto or Halifax or wherever we were centering those events. Now it's whenever and wherever you are and you can join us and we still have the same amazing speakers. So it's, you know, it's, it's been an, an adaptation and everyone at the Walrus has worked really hard on that. But yeah, it's been really interesting being the person with the most technical knowledge and also the most strategic knowledge and trying to bring that into everyone's different fields. Cause I'm not an expert in events, um, but I had to become an expert in events so that I could, you know, help with them strategically with their digital events. It's been, it's been really interesting. And I got to expand my team, which is also nice. Nice pandemic uh, uh, change. Yeah, you bring up such an interesting point in terms of changing the ways that we do things. Cause I think our first response, and this is, you know, this is historically true. Our first response is just to want to duplicate the way that we've done things before with our new tools. 
And that's always a bit clunky as opposed to kind of leaning in. The, the best example of that, I think, is like those early digital calendars where it was just like a page and then you flip to the next page and then you flip to the next page because that's what we knew a calendar to function as as opposed to something where you could search it and zoom into it and see the calendar at a, at, uh, at a glance and see your year at a glance and see kind of the trends and patterns and where you had. And that's, I think, that moment that we're in right now where certainly I think in terms of how we're all working and getting things done, we're still using tools that were created before the pandemic. I guess that's a good transition moment to the pandemic. And this I'm going to throw over to you, Sasha, because there's already been so much change happening so quickly in terms of how creators reach their audiences, the platforms that dominate. And then you throw a pandemic into the mix and it changes things even more. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on how the industry has changed, your industry, gaming especially, has changed since COVID and in turn how your, your strategies have changed and are changing. Um, you know, gaming, I mean, at least... I speak for myself, I speak for many people, I think, you know, I think Animal Crossing will be written about in history when we think about the early lockdown in the spring that happened. Um, mobile gaming has grown into a hundred billion dollar industry, in-app purchases. This statistic is even from, I think, the spring or summer, but had jumped 24% since the pandemic had began. Uh, and you have a game coming out. So what have you been your experiences? I think, uh, as, it's funny because the video game space is already much like the music industry was ahead of the curve in digital distribution. Um, if anything, because video games had really uh, intense gatekeepers in the process of distribution of video games in the old like DVD type um, release. And so since the creation of, of app stores and Google Play, more and more independent creators uh, have been able to do exactly what you know what John and Jay were talking about, which is just that direct reach to consumers. It was like, well, if there's too many gatekeepers over here, then we'll just go right to consumers. And so the video game space, particularly for independent developers, we've been trying to do everything that everyone else is doing for the past 10, almost 15 years now, which is weird to think about because we can just release direct to iPhone, we can release direct to Steam and um, increasingly now, this relation, ongoing relationship with other platforms. So we've had to do this. And the video game space has been one of the, you know, working with Ontario Creates is one of the leaders in that discoverability side of things because, you know, through the IDMF, we would get all this money to create our games. <laughs> we needed help with the marketing. And, uh, and so, which is, you know, just to say Ontario Creates has been really um, supportive around that for the industry. And uh, yeah, and then as the pandemic came about, I definitely made, I, there are companies here in Ontario that that had games planned. I mean, my friends at Bloom Digital in Peterborough like had a game come out like the day everything was shutting down. <laughs> it's like you've been planning for your launch for four months. You can't just stop. So you just keep going. Um, and from my understanding, it has, the pandemic hasn't really impacted the sales side. And like you were saying, people are suddenly stuck at home and they need something to do. And uh, video games with any form of connectivity to friends and colleagues has really taken off. So Animal Crossing in particular, I mean, people were doing virtual birthday parties all through the spring because like you couldn't get together with your friends. So you could, you could do it that way. Fortnite is another one. Um, I even had friends who typically would be very worried about their teenage boys spending so much time on video games until they realized that this was the only way that their teenage boys were socializing because they were doing groups with their friends. And they were like, actually, video games are really good to help with the mental health of my kids. So the perspective of video games is bad suddenly over the course of the spring. And even for parents and, and of kids who are like, oh, screen time's bad. Well, parents had to work. 
And they're like, oh my gosh, please give me five minutes. Of, give me two hours a piece. Here's Animal Crossing. Here's Netflix. Here's whatever. Um, you couldn't, you still can't find a Nintendo Switch in most of Ontario, like this waiting list. So, um, so for us, it's more changing the messaging um, because now it's a very crowded place because everyone such as like all the panelists here are great examples where Walrus is now trying to get attention and Level Films is trying to get their products attention. So now the issue is that everyone's trying to get attention on the same handful of digital and social platforms, um, which is creating kind of its own, own issue. I guess I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> Well, and so I've got a, a bit of a follow-up question because I think it's I, you know, the, the point that you raise about whether it's Fortnite, like that kids were spending time in these platforms and parents didn't mind because their kids were socializing. There's something else that we've all noticed is like what's appealing about Animal Crossing or Fortnite is that in some way you're embodied, you're there. It's like anecdotally, the thing that I heard more than anything about Animal Crossing in the spring was that you could just hang out together. You were just together. Whereas like on Zoom, we can see each other's faces, but we are just so explicitly painfully aware of the fact that we are in our own homes and separate. So kind of connected, but in these platforms, and it's been true for you know over a decade or, or two now even, that in, in um, networked games, you're sort of together, which is something that people, that, you know, the, the kid, the people broadly, not just kids who were playing some of these games, had this leg up that other people didn't have. And I know with you, you've been looking at, uh, and, and even before the pandemic, you were looking at non-traditional audiences. And I, I think there's something really fascinating just connecting those two dots. Like my instinct is there's gonna be more and more desire for ways to connect that isn't Zoom, that is maybe a bit more embodied. And I'm curious about what you're seeing in terms of some of the research you were doing pre-pandemic and how you reach the gamers or the people who maybe aren't you know, don't, aren't capital G gamers, aren't on Twitch and how that's playing out these days. Yeah, like there's, um, just, to, I know, similar to what you're saying, I know like some businesses have been toying with VR as their in-person spaces to get away from Zoom. Um, of course, VR requires headsets and, and there's other issues um, around that. And uh, in our case, um, because like we are, we're a company that identifies as a feminist company um, with a very diverse team and we, you know, I, I don't want to make games that I don't like playing and I don't like playing button mashing shooter games because I can't play them. I have no hand-eye coordination. So <laughs> we make, basically we make games that gamers like I can play or games that the people on my team want to play, which is, you know, discovery, exploratory um, and creativity. And, uh, and so in our case, it's been like, okay, well, the, the, as, as we know, uh, Entertainment Software Association Canada comes out with studies every year that year over year, 50% of gamers are women. We just don't typically classify those who played Farmville 10 years ago as gamers because they're, you know, they're the stereotypical gamer is, is the young male 18 years old with headsets and all this. But there's so many casual gamers with, you know, with iPhone. And I think with um, Animal Crossing is a great example of, you know, people who would say, oh, I'm not a gamer, but I play Animal Crossing. It's like, well, actually, that does make you a gamer. You're just not the traditional space. And so for us in the crowded marketplace, it's been, okay, well, there's so many indie games and, um, and how do we reach non-traditional audiences? Because going through the traditional video game media route, you're immediately speaking to the hardcore, typical defined gamer who's reading the tech news on games, who's reading the tech sections. And we want games that are going out to the so-called non-gamers and they're not reading those publications. So I kind of don't care, but you know, gamer biz thinks of me. <laughs> I care about um, how I can get it in the hands of, of you know, um, 
women identifying 35 plus or women identifying, you know, 14 to 22. So we're looking at, you know, leveraging social media in a different way and doing, you know, instead of targeting and all kinds of Twitter campaigns, it's like, how do I do really smart Facebook or Instagram ads? How do I reach out to lifestyle reporters, bloggers, um, et cetera. And that's a whole different thing because there's no, in our case, if we're looking at non-traditional routes of promotion, it's not like, um, sorry, video games are typically reported on in the business and technology section. They're not reported on entertainment. Usually. So that's our battle, which is how do we get the games in the hands of the people who aren't reading the tech sections, but who are reading the lifestyle entertainment sections. And, uh, so yeah, that, that's, the, that's the journey we're now on. <laughs> and part of that is social media ads where we can do highly targeted um, mm-hmm. niche audiences. Well, you don't need to get me started on how bonkers I think it is that tech is its own like vertical in the world still, like kind of the old newspaper model of like business, cars, tech, when it clearly touches every single aspect of our lives. But we're, we're clearly on the same page there. It's like Jay- the phrase new media, which we haven't seemed to have killed yet. <laughs> how, how is that still around? What yeah. <laughs> um, Jay, now kind of, you gave us a good overview in terms of uh, the, the shifts that were already underway. I think, you know, when we think about music and think about COVID, it, it feels like it's out of all the industries that are here, um, a lot of the others would have had an easier time continuing because so much of what they do is digital. Whereas, you know, you think of music and it feels like, well, concerts just just stopped, right? Broadway closed, everything just stopped in the middle of March. So with the pandemic, how have things shifted? Has there been, is there is there any silver lining? What's what's the picture? We're getting, we're getting hella creative. That's, that's the thing, you know, obviously, as you mentioned, like, the touring and not being able to do live events um, has hurt, you know, the management side of of music, the live event space, and ultimately the whole industry. You know, genres like rock and country uh, were really, would plan their marketing rollouts based on touring. That was one of the major drivers. So, you know, if you talk to our our guy, Nathan, our A&R, who does a lot of the the rock and country stuff and, and, an alternative, you know, he'll tell you that they've had to get a lot of really creative and they've had to come up with different strategies, um, you know, whether it be live event or doing virtual events. Um, you know, they had a really great idea from our radio department, for instance, with uh, a big thing was we'd go out and do uh, radio promo tours. So we had an artist, Jason Blaine, and he went out and uh, instead of going and doing a radio promo tour, where we're paying for flights, hotels, transportation, they did it virtually and just did it on Zoom and connected the artists with the program directors and did a whole national campaign. So getting creative like that, and I think another big thing for us has been, um, you know, two areas is is, uh, mood playlists in general, I think for the uh, music industry. And it kind of alludes back to your uh, thing about hitting the non-traditional consumer. Um, But, you know, think of it, everybody's at home. Uh, We all now have these voice activation devices so people are saying i want to hear chill morning music to you know to listen to or um and creating moods so you're having all these new music consumers who are using this voice activation uh to discover new music so we're having that is a huge discovery uh for us we had and and we're really looking at doing stuff like that we have one of the acts that i signed rye um 
you know, they, we, he launched a song uh, with Diplo through the Calm app. So that was how they broke the song. Um, and then we had worked with Apple uh, Music here, um, going back to the, the big multinationals. And instead of pushing Rye as a front centered artist, we uh, did a promotion with them, their Apple Focus campaign, where we did the, we, uh, the artist took over their pure chill playlist. So he curated that playlist. So again, we're getting that sort of promotion uh, there, but kind of subtly, and also it's a great discovery. So I think that's been a big thing. And then just content is, is putting out more content, um, getting, uh, whether it be, you know, live streams or virtual tours, or just creating blog series, video series, and getting more content. Um, and I would say the other big thing is the, the shift to influencer marketing. We, in the last two months, have had a crazy, uh, one of the bands uh, that Last Gang and Chris Taylor signed, and I think the, the record came out in 2008 by Mother Mother, you guys may be familiar. Uh, but in September, a bunch of TikTok influencers started picking up their, their songs. And it has now, there literally was a Rolling Stone piece out today about it, but the band has now, uh, we're streaming close to a million a day uh, from this. Since September, I believe there's been uh, 65 million tags on TikTok for Mother Mother. And here's the interesting thing. It got picked up primarily from uh, creators doing uh, gender related posts. So it really identified with the non-binary community and they've been the ones really kind of championing it. So we've had a catalog that we again owned from 2018 which now they're in uh, Rolling Stones, I believe, or Billboard's you know, uh, top artist list, and it's one of our biggest streamers. Um, so it's just amazing now. And again, we're looking at doing more influencer marketing and tapping into TikTok and Triller and some of these other platforms because they're becoming major uh, influencers for us and, and literally creating surprises from organic uh, you know, usage from some of these creators. So. We're just getting really creative and uh, and creating content. We have artists also doing more mood based stuff like creating piano albums, where if you had a, a traditional artist go, oh, I'm going to create a chill piano album. You may be like, uh, I don't know about that 10 years ago, but now there's actually playlists that cater to this. Um, so we've been getting really creative and and uh, yeah, those are some of the things we've been tackling um, without touring. Yeah. What comes to mind also is just um, the amazing, like that amazing story of Fleetwood Mac uh, being back in the charts right now also because of TikTok after, you know, you talk about 2018, what is it? That's like 30 years, 20 years. It's, incre it's really incredible. Uh, John, you've had a couple uh, or a number of films be released during the pandemic. Babe Nation uh, successfully released a couple of films. Um, you, what insights do you have in terms of distribution strategies? Because again, you know, everyone's looking for content and everyone's, I think, watching so much because what else are you doing in the evenings? Um, but certainly it's shifted uh, quite substantially. Yeah, um, it's like, it's frustratingly unpredictable, like uh, the business I'm in, uh, movies you think that will work, don't work, and movies that you um, had low expectations for do very, very well. Um, so it's, it's really hard to 
to figure it out sometimes. Um, I think nostalgia is playing well right now. Uh, not surprisingly, escapism is playing well. Again, not surprisingly. Um, I think given the situation, what we're finding, again, our, our data points are just the films we are releasing. It's hard to get information on other companies' films, but basically, at least my theory on this is people don't, people don't want to be too surprised right now when they're consuming uh, films and television. Um, so anything that's kind of edgier, um, I'm not sure people want to embrace that. I think that people want um, right now film as comfort food for obvious reasons. And so I think we're finding, um, you know, if you look at kind of Netflix and the titles that are working on Netflix, there's a lot of nostalgic stuff, a lot of stuff set previous eras, um, kind of a lot, you know, um, romantic movies where you kind of know the outcome. I think that's what's kind of happening now. We operate in the indie space and, um, most of the kind of films we would get involved with tend to not be the predictable kind. Um, they, they tend to be uh, pushing the envelope a little more. Um, so that's um, possibly uh, problematic for us. Um, but the stuff we've had, something like The Rest of Us has done very, very well for us this year, which is a Canadian film with Heather Graham. And um, a very good film. Uh, and in a normal world, we would have uh, released it theatrically and then you know, three months later, released it on VOD, and then three months later, had it on on Crave, for instance. Because of uh, lockdown, we couldn't op open it in theaters, and so all of our marketing push directed people to to um, to VOD and and digital downloads, um, and it worked really, really well. And I believe that if in a normal world we had released this in theaters, it wouldn't have worked. There's something about that film. Um, that people were happy to pay $5.99 and at home and watch it and were very happy that they rented it. But I'm not sure we would have been able to get people to leave their houses and go, and that's in a normal, so I think that's one of the films that benefited by the new situation. And, and so for me, it's gonna be interesting to see how release models have changed permanently or, or just temporarily during the situation. Um, well, as part of that, do, sorry to interrupt, I, I have a question based on that that I think might be relevant to everybody here, although everyone's industries are slightly different admittedly. Um, would the marketing budget have been split into those various phases, like a, a third to push to get them out to theaters, a third to push to get the VOD, and then a, a third once it's um, like in, in that in that long long tail life, uh, or maybe not a third, a third, a third. But is part of the success that you get to take the whole? I mean, the the challenge is always not enough marketing dollars, and I think for people starting out when they hear like exactly what you put into production should at least that much should be going into production. Indie creators just feel like, what? I'm gonna spend this much on marketing when I'm giving my talent who's making it, the creators making it. Like it just, it feels unfathomable, I think to a lot of indie creators, just how much effort and money needs to go into marketing um, is part of, do you think part of the success you're seeing is just pooling and concentrating all those resources to one push in one place or is it something else? It's possible. I think there's probably multiple explanations. Um, I mean, the conventional wisdom is that you would release a film theatrically. It would give it legitimacy and make it a kind of uh, uh, a theatrical experience, basically. And you'd spend most of your marketing dollars then. And then people would remember the film three months later for VOD. And um, again, the companies in this business would benefit from the distinct windows. Um, so in this case, do you, you basically are confronted with the question of how much money do you spend? If you're skipping theatrical, do we spend the same amount as we would before, but just direct people to VOD? Do we spend less money? Um, and it's 
who knows for sure, right? We're, so we're constantly experimenting. Um, basically, theatrical is the most express. It's the most expensive part because in addition to the marketing costs, there's certain hard costs on just getting films to theaters um, that you can't avoid. And so it's actually more efficient to release it not in theatrical. But um, I would say, I would say that there's been a permanent shift towards the films. I think there's going to be more distinction between what films are theatrical and what films are not theatrical. And I think there's less, there'll be less pressure on, on we and distribution to, to uh, have to release everything theatrically. I, I think it's, it doesn't make as much sense. And I think, and this is funny, we we're just having this discussion um, yesterday with somebody. Um, I really think that kind of transactional part, the part in the middle, that's the part that might be squeezed a little further and that you might see this kind of polarization between theatrical movies and streaming movies and in between might be less important. I think that's the way we're going. And so then the question is what's theatrical? Is it just the big Marvel movies, temple movies as they call them? Is that the only thing in theaters? I don't think so, but I, I think there's gonna be that kind of distinction. Uh, the other reason is on Rest of Us, I mean, it's a good film, it's charming. Um, I think it was the right kind of film that had a good mix of comedy and drama. Um, the marketing was good. I think the trailer and the, and the 30 second spots we had were good. Uh, in the end, I don't know for sure why, why it worked and, and, and would it have worked better or worse the other way? Don't know for sure. Mm. Uh, all right, we are at about five minutes left in the panel before I want to open things up to Q&A from everyone who's attending. I know there's some questions that are there already. Angela, I wanted to throw over to you, though, because I do want to get into the challenges for indie creators and any advice all of you have got for independent creators, because I think that's who's watching. I mean, I think that's, I mean, I think that the, the biggest challenges now, pre-COVID, because of, you know, platformization and certainly post-COVID, are for independent creators, but maybe also opportunities. So I'd love your advice. But Angela, I also wanted to get your sense of, of any silver lining post COVID. Uh, anything first that I would say, Go ahead. Sorry, first, first I would say, John, I very much miss movies and I can't wait to go back to theaters. So thank <laughs> you for continuing to fight for that because I miss it so much. I don't know if I'm just a loser and that was like one of my favorite things to do in life, but I love going to theater and I don't just go for Marvel, though I do go for Marvel, but I also- Yeah, unfortunately, you're gonna have to, you're gonna have to leave Ontario Wait a right bit. now. I know. Because <laughs> most know of Ontario similar. isn't like that, or at least in, in Toronto and uh, in Ottawa. <laughs> I know I miss it, but I want you back. I want all of you back. Um, and I'm, I'm keeping my life busy by playing World of Warcraft, Sasha, so you'll be happy to hear that as well. And I listen to the, the chill music in the morning, Jay, so you're absolutely right. You, I'm, your, I'm your model person. Um, so what I would say in terms of indies as both, you know, at the Walrus and uh, as an author who just released my book, yes, Wednesday? On Wednesday was my latest book launch, um, is that there are opportunities. Like, there are opportunities to... I'm gonna say experiment and to R&D things because people are more forgiving in this space uh, of pandemic. We give people a lot more leeway. So at the Walrus, we launched something called Article Club, which is something I've been wanting to do for a couple of years, but could never get anyone behind me on it. And suddenly when we weren't doing like real gorgeous, fantastic events, people were like, okay, Angela, go try that over there and let's communicate with the community. And they took off. like. Article Club is basically a book club where you get to talk about an article, which is a lot less commitment. It's 3,000 words as opposed to 80,000 words. So people can actually dedicate, you know, like time to reading the article and then talking about it. And you have the author talk about it and you, you talk about the issues. 
and it, it, it's been doing really well with our community. And it was an opportunity that I swear would not have come up while we were not in pandemic times because people were all focused on the big picture stuff. So the, the opportunity to experiment, the, expor uh, the opportunity to R&D stuff, I think you have an audience out there that's a lot more forgiving of us trying things, even from, from indie to big industry. Um, so I, I would say that is the silver lining. And as an author, I would say that's absolutely true. I had people coming to my virtual book launch who not only wouldn't have been able to come if I'd just done it in a bookstore in Toronto as I usually do, but also people who had heard about me and are wanting to support indie authors right now because the, I mean, every industry is hurting, including indie publishers. So yeah, I think there are silver linings. So take advantage of them, like reconnect with that community in different ways and see what they're looking for and what they need from you. I would add to, um, you know, great, great. I agree completely. There are, especially for content creators right now, I think it's like an amazing time. Um, that's why I love the internet. And I even go back to, you know, in traditional retail, when you used to buy on the music sense, go to stores, there was a retail buyer who had to choose the record, same in the DVD industry, and choose it and put it on shelves. And they created your reality of what you could buy in a sense. Um, with the internet and these platforms, the people choose. Um, so I think the really great uh, thing now is create content. It's so easy to actually uh, create it now with the technology and, and, and you know, whether it's, you know, camera and, the, the, and, and music technology and stuff to create uh, content. So, and you're having people putting it up on YouTube, blowing up, and then next thing you know, they're calling John uh, for distribution for the film or something, right? So, or hopefully he probably wanted before that, but, uh, you know, you're able to see, and that's, you know, for us, it's an A&R tool because I'm seeing these people, these 19-year-olds these who made a song in their basement, threw it up on Spotify, and Apple, and it's at 15 million, and now labels are calling them, offering, you know, big bags to them. So I think the really exciting part is create content. Uh, there's a lot of means to self-distribute or at least get the initial attraction that may lure more investors or more partners. I think the other huge thing is brands. Um, you know, I have a lot of friends in the brands, and, and that was a lot of what we do. There's no experiential marketing budgets anymore because there's no live events. There's no physical retail marketing budgets because there's no physical, barely any. So they're shifting their funds. Uh, one of my guys I work with does Dickies, and their whole campaign uh, was they shifted to letting content creators create their content because they couldn't send teams out during COVID. So they're working with content creators to provide content that they're paying for and doing brand deals for. So I think that's a huge thing is that there's a lot of brands that are looking for new, new ways to market and are working with creators. Uh, so there's, I, I think it's, it's an amazing time for creators because the, the barrier of entry has, has lowered and you can see real life analytics and stats. Um, and, and a lot of, and that's why I think people are tripping out over influences. You'd be like, this kid just does, you know, unboxings and, you know, he's massive. Mm -hmm. So um, it's a great opportunity. And I just say, create as much content as you can, monetize it. We even do things like, again, if we do a lyric video, we do a visualizer and a music video, we're putting those all on YouTube and monetizing them all. Maybe the vi visualizer creates more money than the music video because some influencer picked it up or retweeted it or something. So create lots of content. Um, and, and it's a great time, I feel, for creators, especially in the music space. So would you say 
just trying to distill what everyone is saying here as well, not to get hung up on the way things were done and the ways that you can't do things the same anymore. But instead, if you just figure out how to do things in a way that they can be done now, that's the opportunity. And in a sense, there may be more opportunity because it's not just you as a creator who can't do things that way, but it's the entire ecosystem, all the machines that support it. And there's a desire for yeah. content. Yeah, and tap your community. Like you, the skills are out there. They're not just sitting in big businesses, not sitting at Sony. Like there are people out there that can help you create amazing stuff. Like tap your community. Mommy? I just got a, I just got a guess over Mommy? here. Mama. A future content creator. <laughs> future content creator. I'm gonna take a shower. Okay, babe, see you again. We're gonna go viral because of that one. <laughs> 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 so um there is one question can angela tell us a little bit about the book she just released oh that's so kind of you um so this is my fourth Portia adams adventure uh, mystery so uh I, it's released with cormorant it's uh out right now and it's about a canadian woman who inherits 221 baker street in 1930 so go read it go buy seventeen thousand copies for all your friends christmas is coming and indie. <laughs> I would love it. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, another really good question that I'm glad somebody asked, uh, because everyone's really been quite, I mean, I'm really glad that the conversation went this way this morning, because I think on a Friday morning, it's what everyone needs in terms of opportunity. But, you know, we don't hear that it's all good times working with big tech Things are not always transparent. Things are not always easy. You know, you build an audience and it could disappear the very next day. There's a lot of challenges. Um, and so one of the questions is if you could speak to the frustrations or challenges you've had working with big tech platforms and how you solve them. So I don't know if anyone has anything. Sasha is ready to jump in. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting working with like, groups like Apple's is one great example where, you know, and we're working with a client now where, the rules between distributing video and music is different than the rules on the app side. But then on the app side, there's all these different rules that we have to follow. Um, there's, you know, if you get really big enough, Apple could get cranky with how you're doing payment transactions. Apple for 15 years has always taken 30% of your sales. And it's like, but should they be? <laughs> like, there's no, like, that's it. It's just, it's a given. But the argument is, well, should Apple be taking like is 30% the right amount? I mean, if you are a really huge, if your game takes off and you're selling for $5.99 and it's taking off, like, does Apple still need to make 30? Like, we're just, we just don't know if that's the way to go. And then also trying to keep up on the video game and app side, Apple and Google, because of American legislation, which probably rolls a little bit into the message that's coming in the chat too, because of American legislation, Apple and Google have been like, and I know YouTube's been hit by this too, changing a whole lot of how they operate to better fit American legislation, which kind of has a impact across all of us globally. And it's like, I, this is not a problem anywhere else in the world, but the USA, but because these are American-based tech platforms, we're all impacted by it, um, good or bad. So one of the you know pitfalls of doing independent distribution is having to also keep on top of all of these ongoing changes where sometimes you do just wish, can I just have a distributor or publisher handle that for me? And <laughs> Anyone else want to jump in on challenges with big tech? 
uh, before we move on to another question? Because I think it's something that everyone has probably dealt with. I could say just on quickly on music, but I, I feel like it's it's being resolved. I mean, it is being resolved is some of the platforms like TikTok and, and Instagram, the social apps that were using music, TikTok had a hard time initially coming into the market as a, a Chinese company and dealing with all the, the, the legal issues. But our big thing was how do, you know, if, if your songs are blowing up here, we need to get paid um, if it's being played and we own that content. So that I think has been something the industry and Merlin's and the, the lobbying groups have dealt with. And, and thankfully we, we've saw some We've seen some uh, progress there, but I think everybody's still looking at this as how do we make more money off this wonderful streaming world? But uh, I think that that was a challenge, but is is, is now getting uh, better where we are monetizing content that's on TikTok and on Instagram. For, for us, the, the big issue is um, the streamers come in um, um, and they have no, um, there's no mandate and there's no appetite for them to buy specifically Canadian content. And so um, it's making it more challenging if you're a Canadian producer of, of films or television to get it seen um, because if Netflix isn't buying anything Canadian and they're not contributing to the system, um, that's unhealthy. Now, if you are the, the exception, the one producer who can sell the Netflix, that's great. You'll do lots of people will see your, your film and you'll make lots of money, but most people aren't in that situation. So that's a big issue just as for me as a film lover. Um, and you're going to have fewer voices being heard if you have the dominance of, you know, two or three streamers and they get to decide what gets made. So that's unhealthy for a creative industry as well. Um, the idea of um, supporting Canadian content, we're hearing that that's probably going to be addressed in the near future by the government of Canada by changing how streamers are treated and if they got they have to contribute to the you know the ecos the creative ecosystem in Canada. But anyway, that's an issue that that we're mm -hmm. keeping an eye on. I would say that that um, as a woman of color, I'm actually getting more opportunities during this pandemic because of the timing of various things that are coming together. So publishers who are putting callouts just for people of color or, or filmmakers or, or different mm -hmm. groups. So I gotta say as a woman of color and a creator, um, there's been a lot more opportunities, but that's a very niche answer to your question. I mean, it's great to hear. It's, it's... I know, it is awesome. I, 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 it's I, awesome I do for... love the, the wave of good news on, on this and good perspectives this morning. Uh, there's another question that I feel like is an age old question for, for Canadian content creators and relevant to your answer, your last answer, Sasha, certainly John, what you were just talking about, which is about our brand as Canadian artists or Canadian entertainment community. I'm gonna read the whole thing. Do you think all, uh, do you all think dealing with our identity crisis will bring us a step closer to solving this issue? Drake and the Raptors, I'm gonna throw in Schitt's Creek, um, have certainly introduced a, an incredible opportunity to build on. We are more than maple syrup and beavers, smiley face. Why do we need validation from the US before uh, the industry here takes notice and how do we change that narrative? John, that's a- Yeah, I, I'm not sure again, again, there's lots of different answers to this, but also I'm always reluctant, although excited to see success of Canadian artists and Canadian films. Um, and the Raptors, of course, um, but those are the exceptions. Like there's, for every one of those, there's thousands of other Canadian creators that are, are struggling um, to get their stuff seen. Um, there's that, that balance between 
um, allowing creativity and allowing um, storytellers to come into Canada and, and Canadians can consume what they want to consume and watch what they want to watch and listen to what they want to listen to. But because we're so close to the U.S. and they're so dominant um, in this area, you have to do something to kind of to nurture the creative, uh, Canadian artists. So the question is, how far does that support go and, and what protections do you allow them? For us specifically in film, it's an expensive art form, very expensive. And so um, different than I'm sure video game is the same thing. Music is relative, relatively less expensive as is, you, you know, anything that has to do with, um, you know, on the walrus or, or books and that sort of thing. So that's the, the bigger issue for us is like, how do you finance these things? And is mm -hmm. it government funded? Is it on the private sector? And if it's in the private sector, how do the new modes of streaming, how does that affect how much money you can raise to make your film? Um, I take the position, maybe not everyone agrees with this. A Canadian film is something created by a Canadian. It's not, it doesn't necessarily have to say anything about maple syrup or beavers or whatever, um, but it's somebody who's a Canadian. Now, then you get into the slippery slope. Okay, what's a Canadian? Is it, you know what I mean? Like, but I, I kind of believe anybody who's like basically a Canadian and they create something, it's Canadian. And like, but there's other, um, you know, there's the actors unions and, and there's the CRTC. There's other things that define, you know, technically is this product considered Canadian or not? And that's a little more complicated. Uh, but for me, um, the stories are just, you just want people to tell their stories and for them to be seen and heard. Um, doesn't matter what the subject is. I think, I think another thing that a lot of people, when this question comes up is America has 300 million people and we have 30 million. So when companies are investing in content, they're looking at a 300 million core home market and then the global market. Um, so the difference in terms of what, again, a record company like Atlantic has in, in terms of what they're signing budget wise versus Canada can differ just simply based on the market. But I will say this, that I think in music, we have the biggest rapper, uh, pop artist, Drake, we have The Weeknd, Justin Bieber, there's, we're killing music uh, on a global level. And I will tell you, these record companies, including E1, are very, uh, we, are, we are very actively, uh, you know, looking uh, to sign Canadian talent. I think the days of, oh, uh, especially in the music space with all the success we've had of, um, you know, you're seeing the Canadian entities really chasing after some of these uh, uh, buzzing artists now. And obviously, I think it was a wake-up call. But I think the the challenge is, again, if you're a company in Canada, you may be looking at your business from a Canadian perspective. That's why I think things like Ontario Creates and some of these funding organizations are vital. Because if we want to keep our IP in Canada, we got to be able to compete with our U.S. counterparts who are putting in these offers. And that's to, to my point. So if we can match that with uh, additional funds and there's other ways that we can supplement that, that's how we keep IP in Canada. Mm -hmm. um, and that I know has been a big thing for us and, and being able to compete. Um, and especially when the analytics are so right out there for everybody to see now. So the discovery, when something does well on Spotify, believe me, all the A&Rs are, are looking and Apple and so forth. So, uh, you know, uh, that would be my thought there. I'm actually going to take this in a whole other direction. Um, I'm skipping the American markets for my two games coming out. It is such, in the video game space, it is so crowded. 
Um, and with everything going on in the United States right now, it's like I could compete with any of these other indies in the American market and all the money they have, or I can leverage the fact that my team is has Brazilians, has Chinese, give me global insights to what they used at home. And so, for example, our kimono dress-up app, um, because my developer is Japanese Brazilian, <laughs> she's like, did you know that the biggest diaspora of Japanese outside of Japan is in Brazil? Yeah. And it's like, well, yeah, I mean, the United States has a large Japanese population, but I also know it's really hard to really pinpoint them. Or if I develop my games with very little language inside, I just have to get, and I teach part-time at Centennial. I have a lot of Brazilian communications professionals in my network. Hire one of them for a couple hundred. Can you translate these things into like this marketing speak for me? Um, I can throw it in the app store and boom, I have it in Brazil. And frankly, Brazil's a much bigger market than the United States, as is India and China. So if I can, and then if I can make it globally in other, lar other larger markets, and then it trickles back to the United States, that's amazing. And even last time I attended GDC, thanks to Ontario Crates and the uh, IDMF Global Market Support, <laughs> um, none of, not a single meeting I had was with an American. Every single meeting was with global. I couldn't get a meeting with an American, but I got meetings with all over the world. And it's like, you know what? I'm just going to skip it because I wow. just don't deal, then deal, deal with the mess there. So good for you. Uh, I know we're at time. It's 10, but there's, and there's a bunch more questions that we haven't gotten to. There's one, I hope people don't mind if we go over just five minutes, because there's one other question that I think is really interesting. We've been talking kind of broad strokes, creators and industries, but there's a question here about recruitment and job opportunities for crew members, like makeup artists and designers. I think in everyone's industries, there's sort of like the director, the producer, the creator, but then, you know, there's entire industries that are built around all of this. And there's huge implications for all of those people right now. So what is the current industry scenario and are there any trends you're noticing? Any advice for students prepping for careers in the entertainment industry during the pandemic? Uh, and there's a very polite thank you in advance. I think it's a really good, really important question, which is why I hope everyone doesn't mind we go a few minutes over, but this will be our last. Yeah, I mean, for for, for we in, um, in film production, it's especially difficult because um, for obvious reasons, it's difficult to make a film right now. Um, that, so production is going to be a little, very slow right now. And for the next, I would guess the next year, um, the kind of time tested route is you start at the bottom and work your way up. That's one route, right? So you start as a production assistant or you start as an assistant in the makeup department or, or something like that. And now the trick is to get the, that first job. Um, it, it's, and, uh, it's, uh, it, I could in a long-winded way explain maybe different routes to do. So one route is to basically start at the bottom and work your way up in production or in other areas. The other route is, and this is more viable these days, is just make your own films. Like, because the barriers to entry, if you have an iPhone and listen, it's not gonna be high production values, but that's the other one is just to kind of show your creativity and self-promote and don't work your way up, just do it and put it on online somewhere. Um, and that's another viable way of, um, of, of promoting yourself and developing a career is what I would say. To echo what John's saying, I mean, with all these tools, especially if you are a creator and not like, let's say you're not that great with editing, just to say, um, tools like TikTok and Snap, like you can, you can make your own like really great one minute content. And it's not about getting out there and becoming like the next big 
uh, influencer, but if you can then point to this as your portfolio and the fact that you have feedback and comments from people on it, um, you know, it's a way to, to get your creativity out. You can still work with a very small crew, do it with safety protocols. Um, and then you can also demonstrate when you apply for jobs, hey, I did this little short film in the pandemic. By the way, here are the safety protocols that we took. Um, so you can demonstrate that you've had some experience in the in the COVID times. And then also if uh, for anyone with students, I, I am constantly seeing one day job calls in the I need a producer fixer Facebook groups. There's one for Canada and there's one for just Toronto or Ontario. Um, and there's constantly calls for like one day help what like for all kinds of junior like PA, boom up, makeup. And it's like great to take those one day paid jobs. What I put in the, the chat too, sorry. What I was just gonna throw out because we are over time now is uh, all of our awesome, amazing panelists are on social media, are on Twitter. So for some of the questions that we didn't get to, I'm just gonna offer them up and say, I'm sure that they'd be in, willing to answer questions on Twitter and online as well. Uh, <laughs> um, and to continue the conversation there. So thank you so much, Angela, John, Sasha, Jay. This has been so interesting. I feel like we could talk all day and we wouldn't get through um, you know, the challenges, the opportunities, but uh, your insights have been really valuable and I'm sure everyone who's been watching has been really appreciative of your time. Thank you, Ramona. This has been great. Yeah, thanks, Ramona. And um, I'm just popping back up to um, thank everybody. And um, we are going to start letting people into the sort of meeting so that the audience members are, are able to chat with one another. So give us a minute or two if you want to stick around. And then in the meantime, a heads up that we'll be sending you a short survey after the event. We are especially interested in how this format worked for you and whether you have suggestions for other topics you would like us to cover. Um, so thank you again, everyone who joined us and to Ramona for moderating and to our panelists. I don't know if everyone's loaded in yet, but I'm just going to say thank you very much. I can't stay today, but Ramona and team, that was fascinating and a great conversation. So thank you all. Really, really appreciate your time and your contributions. Uh, I don't know how we would do this without the wisdom you guys are also willing to share. So thank you for that. Have a good one. And for those of you in the audience who are um, sticking around, maybe uh, 
a general question to everyone. Um, is there anyone who wants to sort of share an experience that they've had in the, the last couple of months where they've had to sort of change um, like a marketing or distribution strategy um, or have sort of had an interesting um, new way of working with sort of these large multinational tech platforms? This feels like when I teach online. <laughs> well, I was about to, I was about to say, I didn't realize Miriam was on here, but if I can throw to Miriam, cause you launched later daters, which was funded with the support of Ontario creates. Um, yesterday. <laughs> yeah. Um, we launched a game but, yesterday. Yeah. But, but yeah. So like you, you launched a game right as the pandemic started and then vert level and then this part two came about. So like how'd that mm -hmm. go with launching? Uh, it was interesting. I mean, I think the hard thing is that when you're the, the production cycle for games is similar to movies. So we were in production for since 2018, more or less. And so no one could have predicted COVID and a lot of our marketing plans. And we had the global development fund from Ontario creates to go to about five, four events that were subsequently canceled to com complement each stage of our launch. And so a lot of times there's questions like, do you know if COVID has impacted your business? And I have no way of saying whether if the game had launched in 2019 instead of 2020, whether we would have made more money or less because also everybody's saying, well, everybody's playing games now, so they must be spending more money on your game. But you know, the, also the marketing budgets for companies that are putting out AAA games have gotten really, really large. And so going up against, and the, the noise, like the signal to noise ratio in the games market now is so high because everybody is trying to make use of the same channels and all the events that were normally fan events where you would go to a place and go to the booths with the games that you liked or discover games just as sort of walk-bys, uh, those are all over. So you're trying to set up digital booths and just like the sort of the emotional connection of a digital booth is extremely different than actually getting to see a fan or meet somebody and talk to them about their experience of your game. So. Yeah, I want to say I think we did as well as we would have done if there hadn't been COVID, but I suspect that we probably didn't do as well, but not by a massive margin. Like, it's not like we were going to make this much money and we ended up making 10% of that, but I suspect that we're about 25% below projections for our launch. And I would largely put that to the idea that the media has been very scrambled in terms of like mainstream game coverage and the events not happening really threw all the game reviewers into a bit of a tizzy because they screwed up all their schedules. But the thing that has come out for us that rescued us was the influencers. And to Jay's point, like influencers are looking, influencers are looking for really interesting and different game experiences. There's been this really strange, like in the same way that the low key music has been a big hit on YouTube, there's been this real renaissance of something called wholesome games, which we are luck luckily part of. And so it's games that help you relax and make you feel good. And our games do that. So we've we've had some mental uh, health. Yeah, mental health for sure. Like so making people feel less worried, helping people feel more open about some of their emotional struggles right now. So that's all the stuff we do. So I think we've managed to benefit from that. And it feels a bit exploitive to say that, but that was always the core of our business. So it's just we happen to be providing that at a time when people need it. Um 
but yeah, it's been weird. It's been weird watching, not being able to connect with, I think I miss the real personal events myself a lot, like being able to actually see players, talk to them, watch our demos. I've really missed that. I'm excited for that to come back. So yeah, but this was a really interesting discussion. <laughs> not that you have to carry it, Miriam. I just, since you were there and you started talking. Yeah, about no, I'm gonna throw to somebody else. <laughs> I mean, feel free to show us a pet if you've got one nearby. Oh, I don't. <laughs> the dog's with the, the dog's with my partner, sadly. I have another question that is, you know, and just thinking about other topics, I think oh, that yes. challenges and opportunities oh, in terms of um, reaching audiences is really extremely relevant. But I think there's something else, the more time that we're all spending remote that I'm thinking about a lot is new content creation and the generation of new ideas and creativity. And if you're not an auteur who's working by him, by him or herself and just kind of focused on what you're doing, like we don't have those water cooler moments. So much of what's required for innovation, creativity, new thought just requires like going to the studio, seeing the people that you work with all the time and, and not being scheduled in the stuff that we can't really do over Zoom, but just those like casual moments where someone says, unfortunately, you look really tired and you're like, well, it's because I've been up trying to solve this thing and you know them and you trust them and you've got that creative rapport. And, and there's been some studies even on just how the remote context affects creativity and innovative thought negatively for those reasons. So that's another piece is like how people are, I mean, it's one thing to say to make a TikTok video, but where something requires a larger team and collaboration, dealing with some of those challenges in terms of creative content. I'd love to know what workarounds people are making and how they're, how they're solving some of those problems. Even in terms of like, my husband makes physical games, testing is just impo practically impossible for them. But there's so many things that we rely on being face-to-face. -face. Uh, and I think just kind of gathering people's insights about the ways that they're solving for some of that would be really valuable to a lot of people as well. I, we struggle with that because music videos were a big part of obviously our, our marketing. And when, when COVID and the pandemic hit, it kind of limited all those opportunities. We canceled video shoots. Again, reassessing budgets, we allotted for it. Um, but I guess what I, and I've heard a lot of creatives initially, especially for the first few months who are really frustrated to your point that just, they felt in a box, they felt that they couldn't, you know, let out their creativity, but I think as time progressed and I think somebody uh, mentioned on here, I think uh, Sasha, I think, but like even things like this app canvas, like, uh, my girlfriend has a business and a clothing business and she does all these stuff on canvas. And I, I'm like, this looks like it came from an ad company. Um, so I think people are using the technology to the best of their abilities. And I think, you know, I say this in music, if, if you leave a producer with a, a drum production machine and you lock him in there, uh, he's going to learn how to turn all those knobs and press all those buttons. So I think hopefully creatives are, are, are kind of utilizing the technology to, to get a little bit more creative and see what you can produce, but you know, with less of a crew, you know. There's definitely two I find, uh, and I, as on the being on the producer management side, it's the uh, there's a lot of oh, like I find and finding there's a lot more over communication, and even talking with other um, colleagues uh, who head up um, interactive studios around Ontario, 
where because of those water cooler moments where you could like in the kitchen, you could just casually talk and be like, hey, this is what's on my mind. And you can like really quickly problem solve just over making a latte in the kitchen kind of thing or heating up at the microwave that now um, because people are isolated, the problem ruminates in their minds longer. It's harder to, to get things out. And then you're just making sure everyone's on the same page. And so like yesterday, we had to send a bunch of notes that would in person, we'd be able to say to the per say to the, the person on the team to say, Hey, actually, can we pull you off that for a sec? Can you like take a look at this? And can we like jam it out for 20 minutes? And then they'd be like, Oh yeah, here's the problem. Give me, give me half an hour and I'll fix it. And now it's like, okay, we've just slammed the person with a ton of notes. Now we better make sure because also the person's ADHD. So we also have to admit it's like they're getting overwhelmed by all of these things. So now we can't just throw the things at, we then have to take a step back and go, and then this is the order of priority and then checking in on them to make sure um, because like in person we could like keep them in structure, but now that they're distant. So we have a lot of people that are neurodiverse uh, such as myself and it's harder to keep all of us on the same page because then we just get lost in our own heads. So that, that's been a challenge um, with COVID in, in general, I find. A lot of people assume that if you're a novelist, which is my other half of my life, that this is like the best time to write your novels because it's quiet time and, and you're not around people and you're not distracted. The truth is I need humans to write about. Otherwise, I'm just going to write about me and my cats. And if I don't go outside and go to Starbucks and write for two hours and gather the characters, because just so you know, if you see me in Starbucks, you're a character in my book. Um, I, I need to gather real humans that aren't me. So I think it's a struggle for everyone, even who even for people who normally work in isolation until you hand something to an editor, um, having humans around you is what generates story. Otherwise, those are not interesting stories. So I think everyone's struggling, but I also think everyone needs to give each other and themselves a little bit of forgiveness, a little bit of empathy towards yourself. Just because you're in isolation doesn't mean you owe the world a book. Like you owe the, like be creative, do what you can take advantage of the time, experiment, but don't also hold yourself to, well, I must be isolated for the last six months and therefore I should have turned out a book. I, that was my thinking in the first few months. I was like, well, this is, I guess I owe everyone a manuscript at the end of this. Well, no, I don't. If I can create something amazing, awesome. If I can just keep myself sane <laughs> and experiment, then that's okay too. It's interesting too, on the music side, on the flip side, none of our artists are touring. So what are they all doing? they're recording. So as much as the management business and the live event stuff has suffered, the crazy part I'm seeing as a sort of positive twist to this is we're having tons of artists submitting because they're not on the road for six months of the year. So they spent this year creating. So we're getting tons of artists looking for, and again, they have to supplement their income. So if they're not getting that tour income, they're recording and they're trying to do deals. Um, and, you know, to get record deals or put out themselves and so forth. So the crazy part is in the music stuff, uh, music side, we, I feel like recording has increased where, as I mentioned, kind of the video stuff that goes along with the music side is obviously haltered a bit, but the recording side is, is actually, I would say, argue we're sometimes kind of busier than ever um, in terms of recorded music. So it's interesting time. I was going to ask about that because I'm a big fan of going to concerts and shows and, uh, I've been trying to live stream shows, but I feel like it kind of a, it's a combination of Ramona's point and the point about recording is that I've, I've realized my team is entering into a design phase and I've realized it's a lot harder to be creative and do design 
remotely. And then I've also realized about myself that I really get fed from going out and seeing other people's creative work. And that's how I kind of think about what could we do. And so I, I get, yeah, I wonder how the music, how musicians are feeling about recording, but not necessarily sharing. If it's the yeah, same sort it's, of it's, feeling. It's also interesting because what mental health things are they going through? What are they writing about during this period? Because again, to both your, your points, like with the, uh, the touring and you feel inspired, you go out, you do an amazing tour, you come back, you write a great song. Um, so there's a lot of isolation recording and, uh, we're gonna see as all these songs roll out, uh, whether people wanna be in a happy place or a sad place, or we'll see. Just a lot more low key music and a lot less uh, fast fast paced things. All right, thanks so much everyone. I think we're gonna end today's session. Um, we'll be back at the end of November with um, another panel moderated by Tanya Williams from Real World. So we'll be um, sharing information about that shortly. Um, thanks again, everyone. Take care. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Nice meeting you guys. Bye. Bye. Bye.